out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of a record label. Indeed, all the way from New Zealand. It's going to be Flying Nun Records because I spoke to the main man, Roger Shepard, very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, all that groovy stuff. Anyway, this is the interview and after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to the very exciting subject that was the early formative years. That moment when suddenly the light bulb was flicked on and music became an obsession. Roger, tell us about that moment. We're fascinated. Yeah, it was um, pretty sparse for um, popular music in our house. Um, my parents were sort of classical music buffs and snobs when it came to um, popular music. But I think uh, when I was about eight, 1968, 69, um, my older brother had left um, two of his records next to my father's record player, which we weren't allowed to use. Um, and it was Sergeant Peppers and um, the freewheeling Bob Dylan. And I didn't like the Bob Dylan at all. And I still hold a bit of a grudge against Bob. Uh, but I absolutely loved um, Sergeant Peppers. And um, I, I sort of feel as though listening to that for the first time opened up this whole idea of what was possible and you know, what was out there and um, what music could be like, really. Yes. So I sort of see that as a seminal, a seminal moment. Yes. And, and at the time, because bizarrely, I'm, I was born in 64, so I'm now in my mid-50s, but um, in the early 70s, we hadn't got a record player until my dad sort of, you know, I think when being kind of very working class in the countryside, I think when parents got married in the 50s, they kind of literally had to sell everything just to scrape some money together. So they, you know, he sold his records and record player. So then in the 70s, there was a bit of money. So he bought a record player. And they had a couple of really dreadful records. But my brother, who was seven years older, he had two records that he had, which I played endlessly. One was Elton John's Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road. The other one was the Beatles, Sergeant Peppers. And um, <laughs> and interestingly enough, I didn't really, you know, I hadn't thought of it. It was probably about 73. that The Beatles had only just split, split up, though it seemed like a completely different period. But I was kind of fascinated because there was no cultural thing about that album, was there? And listening to it all the way through, and there was a track called Good Morning on side two. I was absolutely blown by the experience. Mm. Yeah, totally, totally. I think, um, especially if you're growing up in a sort of a working class, sort of suburban environment, where you don't actually have much direct, necessarily much direct exposure to to culture of any type, you know, you really have to seek it out, then those kind of records are really pivotal of, uh, you know, suggesting what, what is possible, what's out there, um, mapping out sort of uh, a bit of a future. You know, I always, I always felt that that record sort of uh, gave me a, a sense of colourful optimism where um, my life before before that was a bit of sort of, a, you know, black and white drudgery, really. Yes. And did, um, I mean, then during your sort of teen years, did you sort of gravitate towards, you know, music more and more? Well, I had, um, you, you know, you invariably end up gravitating towards the... Um, not necessarily the cool either, but, but the, you end up gravitating towards the friends that have access to records and quite often they're 
their brother's records or uh, the friend I had, it was his um, sister's boyfriend had a really good record collection, which I think we managed to um, sort of listen to a lot. And it was kind of typical sort of early, mid 70s stuff. It was, you know, uh, Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and Emerson Lake and Palmer and gosh, what else, King Crimson. Um, and, you know, we just sort of listened to those because they were all available and you sort of, you also become, but listening to those three records, you do actually become quite, even at that age, you become quite critical about what what the good tracks are and what the terrible tracks are and, you know, how, I guess, subconsciously you work out how a, a record works as a listening experience, you know, it's two sides, you know, sort of a beginning and an end and two beginnings and ends and, and that whole thing, really. So um, I don't know. I was listening to a lot of that music just recently, and it sort of it took me right back. But it's also, you know, and I remembered some. It was like listening to some great tracks again, ones I couldn't mention, and um, also sort of remembering some of the Duff stuff as well. But it sort of all changed for me. I was sort of um, lucky at sixteen, and that I um, I saw an ad in the pipe. My mother thought I should have a you know, a holiday job and made me look in the newspaper, which is how jobs were advertised and the job, you know, yes. jobs wanted, jobs available, whatever. And there was a job for a part-time job going in a record shop in town. And so I rang up, well, I had to ring quite a few times to get through, but I don't know, you know, the phone was engaged all the time. And I rang up and I spoke to someone and I went in and had an interview and I got the job. So late night Fridays and school holidays, um, all of a sudden, I was um, well. It wasn't really a job, was it? It was um, they gave me money to sort of listen to records, really, and <laughs> yes. to talk to talk to really interesting people about music, pretty much all day long. Um, and perhaps it, perhaps there might have been a bit of busyness at lunchtime, you know, where I might actually have to do a little bit of work. But it wasn't it was barely a job. But it was a great. Um, it was a fantastic experience, and. Um, you know, even though I am um, really not interested in aggressive, uh, even though I'm not at all interested in aggressive rock, I, I do actually know quite a lot about it. Um, so you know, those sorts of those sorts of things. Yes, well, it's interesting because because yeah. because um, you sort of mentioned that because my brother's seven years old and his kind of moment in music in the late seventy in yeah the seventies was Yes Genesis, Wishbone Ash, Barclay James Harvest, and the solo work of. Um, Rick Wakeman, and I was obsessed, you know, I was very young and would sneak into his room when he wasn't there and he said, whatever you do, do not touch my record player So, or record, so obviously one does. And, um, you know, and compared to what was in the charts, you know, I find it all kind of quite fascinating. So then I realised actually, you know, a few years later I didn't really like it, but I still know all that material in the back of my brain, which is quite strange. But then, you know, it was it was kind of... It was kind of the John Peel and the NME moment and, and suddenly indie pop. So did you, during that kind of, in your record shop period, start to sort of become aware of the, the other musical phenomena, which was going to be punk rock? Well, yeah, I think there was a general consciousness that something was coming. <laughs> and it was kind of talked about and none of us kind of knew what it was really and then gradually sort of this idea formed that it, you know, it might be in the shape of 
the Ramones or, you know, I might come out of New York or... And, um, I mean, the classic situation where my um, direct manager took me aside one day and he said, the next, I've got to tell you this, Roger, but the next big thing in music, the, you know, the thing that's going to just go huge um, is space rock. And um, two weeks later, we come in, you know, the Sex Pistols arrived and we knew what punk rock was in a sort of, I guess, most primitive sort of, you know, self-contained sense. So, you know, while a lot of that guy's friends and I and some of my friends all kind of had this vague idea that there was something sort of that was going to change us out of what we've been listening to for God knows how many years, um, he, he still was convinced that... Um, Progressive rock was just going to get more progressive. Yes. So yeah, the punk thing happened, and that just um, that just um, it just felt felt like a a blast of fresh air, really. Which yeah. was. And what was the kind of the music scene like you you know in New Zealand? Because obviously, you know, most band you know most cities have you know a few bands and and sort of towns have sort of you know the the teen spirit starts to emerge and think people start making a sound and getting the attitude what was it like in new zealand for you well i think sort of as far as live music goes it was you know um guys with long hair and perhaps beards and a lot of denim playing in some of the biggest sort of pubs you know in the suburbs um you know, the, the glam thing was really, I mean, people listened to glam rock here, but they, there weren't many glam bands around. And perhaps that was just because people struggled with the clothes, you know, to create the clothing off the look. Um, but, yeah, there wasn't sort of in that mainstream sense, being in a band was something that seemed sort of quite unattainable. And I guess because a lot of that music, the early sort of 70s, seemed quite perhaps hard to play. Yes. So, um, I, but I, I think that's the thing about punk, you know, it all seemed, all of a sudden it seemed really accessible. And it wasn't this idea that you had to, you know, practice and practice and practice and really perfect your art and pay your dues and, you know, work your way up uh, to, I don't know what, I don't know what to do what exactly. But, you know, the whole punk rock thing was about, as you know, I mean, it was about just getting together and learning to play your instruments and, learning to kind of write songs and it doesn't matter if they're not songs and just put on a bit of a, sh you know, so that show some enthusiasm and um, be supported by your friends. With yes. the audience who were quite tolerant. So you were allowed <laughs> to grow, you were allowed to grow up. Yeah. You're allowed to learn how to do it. On, in public. In audience, which is the only way, you know, you can't, you can't do that stuff in a practice room. And did you? The only way is by, is by playing to people. And so that, you know, it is perfect perfect situation for something to, to happen and then develop yeah absolutely and did you at that stage i mean what was it like kind of politically and 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 socially in new zealand because during the 70s in the uk you know there was you know there was like a constant change of government and the three-day week and there was you know very you know amazing lack of money and there was the whole you know, you've probably seen all the film of the dustbin men sort of being on strikes. So there was all this kind of rubbish yeah. in London. And, you know, there was all that kind of feeling that everything was breaking down. Then we had the IRA bombing and and sort of things were looking grim. And then sort of 79, you know, Margaret Thatcher gets in power and then things start to change quite radically. Not 
it still gets pretty horrendous in the 80s, but the, the, the change of government is a thing of the past. It suddenly becomes quite sort of a divided line between the left and right, and then there's more unemployment, but then we had the Falkland, then we had sort of the miners' strike and all that. So what was it like with you? I mean, it was the same, I guess it was the same pressure, economic pressure here, you know, the oil shock of the early 70s and the consequences of that. So gradually our economy was being sort of run down through the 70s. And I think because Britain had joined the EU, um, a lot of our export, you know, Britain as a, as, a, as a recipient of, you know, our exports, that sort of dried up. So it was a sort of a... Was this tricky decade, and we're also um, the prime minister through the um, the bulk of the eighties and into uh, sorry the bulk of the seventies and into the eighties was a sort of uh, quite an unpleasant autocratic character called Robert Muldoon, who um, I think in retrospect really didn't know what he was doing, but um, put on a damn good show of damn good show of uh, suggesting he could do the opposite. So yeah, there was sort of a bit of a divisive kind of aspect to our society developing there that was kind of um, enabled by our leadership. Uh, so yeah, money was got, you know, money got tighter and tighter, things got tenser and tenser. And the, the punk thing sort of came along at a good time really for us. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. If, you know, if only as a diversion. Well, absolutely. And and obviously, and I think it kind of helped in a way having the prog rock stuff and that Californian, I suppose, the Eagles and some of that kind of that whole sort of showbiz, you know, there was people like, I don't know, Rod Stewart suddenly hit that kind of world that was with his supermodel wife, Brick Eklund, and they were all just, you know, flouncing around with sort of flicking their hair about. So it was kind of easy to feel quite rebellious or certainly not part of it. I mean, I was quite young at the time, but I could imagine it must have uh, made the Ramones look particularly appealing when you're 16 and um, you're not going to date a supermodel or whatever. So then... But a leather jacket is attainable. Is attainable, yes, and, and spitting as well is free, relatively. But then, as as we yeah, so trucked into the eighties, you you sort of you you suddenly become quite an entrepreneur. Well, I was working at the uh, I worked at the record shop for well quite a while into the eighties actually, but I could see um, for me personally the live music thing became important. And there were a lot of, you know, a lot of bands had popped up in Christchurch and there was a lot happening. And it wasn't just Christchurch, it was all around New Zealand. And like there was a really vibrant scene in, in Auckland and there was a kind of a scene in Wellington and there seemed to be the start of something quite quite neat in Dunedin as well. So I was just spending a lot of time going at night just going out and seeing bands basically and um, really enjoying them. And sort of coming around to think, I mean, you know, I read, I had a subscription to Melody, uh, to New Music um, Express, and I could just see, I could see that there were all these, one, I could see all these bands coming from funny places, you know, Peru from Akron, Ohio, and, you know, there was Devo, and, you know, there's things in Britain coming out of Manchester or Edinburgh. Um, you know, it was obviously that there was all this stuff happening in regions everywhere. It wasn't just main centres. And also there were these little labels starting to sort of 
form around. You know, we're obviously scenes in these places, you know, Sheffield. There are obviously scenes in these places, and there are with this, uh, quite an important part of those scenes, there seem to be record labels. And it was a really, um, it was a fantastic time, um, you know, early 80s, late 70s, early 80s for record labels, independent record labels. And I just got thinking that, gosh, you know, we should record some of the stuff that's happening in Christchurch. And let's just, let's just do it. And if just for the sake of recording what's happening here now, you know, not necessarily as a sort of a commercial, commercial, let's make some money idea. It's more like, um, you know, let's do, let's do this as a part of the, of the, the greater good. I could say the greater good, but it's probably really the smaller good. But, um, <laughs> That was the idea. Yes. And did you, because I've spoke to a few people, you, the, the re little record labels in, in the UK, there was um, Pink Records, which was um, had people like the June Brides on, and then there was and that Petrol Emotion and various other little bands. And, um, and then you had Rob Lloyd with Vindaloo Records, and then and obviously Alan McGee with Creation Records came along. And... Um, God, there was another one as well I've interviewed recently. Oh, yeah, Sarah Records. Can't forget yep. Sarah. So, I mean, and, and um, with Sarah Records, I remember sort of talking to Claire and, and Matt individually, and they did say that they didn't have a clue what they were doing. They didn't even know what an invoice was. So did you, did you sort of, were you a little bit more aware of how to set this up or were you just thinking, I'll just take it, you know, quite slowly and make a few little mistakes but learn quickly? Well, it was very much, I had no idea how to run a business. I guess um, working in a record shop gave me an idea that I knew where the pressing plant was. Someone gave me a, a name at some point. Someone gave me a name and phone number at the, the Polygram pressing plant here in Wellington. And, um, you know, I, I was instructed to ring Ziggy, um, who I'd never quite worked out what his role there was. But, you know, there was no sort of uh, account application for an account form to fill in. It was just like, oh, radio, and, uh, you know, they'd send me an invoice at the end of the month kind of thing. And I, that was, you know, it was very informal all around. Um, and I think I had $300, you know, capital in the bank. And away we went. And I just, just essentially, I just made, it was all about learning how to do it by making every single mistake possible. And, uh, you know, realising that I had to buy an invoice book quite quickly to formalise that. I could see why they were numbered. Uh, things you don't think about. Yes. And, uh, you know, developed a great rapport with the, the people in the post office um, over the road and um, spent an awful lot of my 80s, a lot of the early 80s in that post office, Christchurch Central Post Office, which no longer exists thanks to the earthquakes. Um, yeah, it's just all those sort of humdrum, humdrum things. Um, never learnt to type, but probably should have. There probably would have been a sensible investment of time early on. Um, but yeah, no, just sort of stumbled along until we sort of got quite good at it. But I mean, I think my the the thing I did have was um, having that record shop experience. As I I could, um, I was really good at knowing what worked at retail and um, I knew how to sort of talk to walk, talk to retail essentially yes and we always had a really strong relationship with record shops here in New Zealand 
Yeah, and obviously, you know, it was a bit of a golden time because musically, you know, I have to say after the post-punk period, which I didn't really sort of, it wasn't kind of my thing, it was the indie world. And, mm -hmm. you know, you'd had those early bands like you'd had Orange Juice and then you had U2, Big Country, Simple Minds had started and Echo and the Bunny Men. But it was kind of 83 when the Smiths appeared that it suddenly all seemed to click into place for about five years. And and in the same time, you know, you had certain, you know, you had the clean and you had the chills. So did you, with those bands, I mean, obviously at the time you probably thought, wow, but looking back, I mean, amazing, amazing records and amazing artists. So it did, the stars did line up for you really well. Yes, I mean, um, I decided to start the label, and there were a few, a few um, Christchurch acts that I was, I was sort of committed to releasing, and then the Clean came through town, and um, they were, you know, they were really quite um, the, the full deal. They were staggeringly good, and um, I sort of ended up on the stage, you know, as they finished. <laughs> You know, probably the final chord hadn't been hadn't sort of hadn't quite finished, and I was on the stage talking to them about perhaps doing a record. Yes. And I spent. Um, then they they thought they said yes, we'll think about that, and they headed off to Auckland, and I thought sure, I better I better follow them up. Just I better I better go up there and just make sure that they know I'm serious and just bat anyone else that's interested out of the way. So of that three hundred dollars I had, you know, as my my total investment to start the label. I spent two hundred and fifty dollars of that flying to Auckland uh, to see them. Um, at Tally Ho, I mean Tally Ho, the, you know. Then, then we had we agreed to do the record. I had fifty dollars left. We recorded Tally Ho for that fifty dollars, and that was the start of it, really. And then they introduced me to their friends, which was Chris Knox from Toy Love, who. Had he wanted to do a lot of stuff for us, and Doug Hood had a four-track, four yeah, four-track, and with that we made Boodle, which was, you know, a top five single, well, an EP in the charts, and the top five twice for, in the charts for half a year, and that just generated the money and the, well, not so much the money, um, cash flow and um, the confidence to do more things, to record more bands. And that coincided with all these other bands coming out of Dunedin, which was the Chills and the Belanes and the Stones and Sneaky Feelings. Yes. So and that had all got a bit of a roll on, really. So then after that, it was um, it was always an issue of being undercapitalised and um, chasing our tails because we just sold more and more records uh, and kept finding more and more bands. And who made some pretty good music, I, I think. Yes. And what's, I mean, when you, you know, you know, I've done an interview with Martin from The Chills. I mean, that's a pretty special time and a pretty special band. So did, you know, what's your sort of feelings and, and sort of memories of that? Uh, the Chills were a special band. And I guess it probably took us almost 10 years to get them to the place they deserve to be, which is, you know, uh, at the time they made um, Heavenly Pop Hit and, um, gosh, uh, the album that that came off. Um, so we got that to number one and the album was number one on the Summer Inbounds. The old album was number one here 
they signed a warrants by that stage, but we all still still have the rights to the band in New Zealand. And the single was number two, and that 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 happened in 1990. Yes. And um, so it was a hard slot for Martin. From you know going from Rolling Moon and Pink Frost in those early years and losing drummers and traveling to the UK a couple of times, um, a few sort of stops and starts, but making great music all the way. But find you know finally getting into the groove of having a proper career, I guess, at the end of the decade. It takes you know it took a while. Yeah. And it's hard. It's really really hard work, especially if you still want to maintain some base or connection in New Zealand. You know, the travel is exhausting. Because that's, um, that's always the thing that, that sort of, uh, you know, I, I slightly appreciated, but I really appreciated after interviewing so many people from New Zealand and Australia, was that, that they would sort of get up and relocate to London and often in a pretty, either in a squat or in something that's a bit better than squat, but only just. So, I mean, it's, it's quite um, an adventure for the young musician, isn't it? Yeah, well, back then it was. I mean, it's sort of easier now. Well, before COVID, it was. <laughs> everything's hard again now, isn't it? But um, yeah, I sort of, I sort of observed the last couple of years that artists, well, artists kind of tend to work alone these days, which sort of makes it even easier for them to travel. But back in the early '80s, it was really tricky. Um, you know, there was limitations. I think in the early '80s, there was limitations on how much money you could take out of the country. Uh, you'd have to do this documentation around your gear, carnets, I believe they were called, to ensure that um, otherwise you'd be slapped with sales tax or some sort of import duty when you got to Britain. Uh, it was really, whoa, it was quite tricky. And yeah. It was expensive. You know, just travel was expensive. So, um, and then, you know, there's the whole thing of a common day. You're not really working. You might be playing some gigs, but you're not really earning an income to maintain a flat in London. Uh, so you're staying with friends or quite often those friends are in a squat or there might be space in a squat. Yeah, it's hard work. It's very hard work, yeah. I mean, were you, I mean, having, you know, the experience, I mean, it's a bit like NASA and sending a rocket up. You must have suddenly had to start employing people and having other issues to deal with, you know, to do with just running a record label. So did it feel, a, did the 80s just go by in a blur? Um, not on a blur, but there were, I mean, there are sort of, if you develop a business, you, you're kind of obligated to take it seriously because invariably you owe people money, um, whether it's artists or suppliers or whatever, but you, you know, you generate, you're generating income and a big chunk of that income is, goes out because you, well, actually, usually more than that income that's coming in is going out. Um, so you kind of, you kind of, you kind of got to develop, a, you know, do actually put some work in and, and, and try and run it as well as you can. But we did have people working with us. Um, Hamish from Clean was our first employee. Then I had a guy with more accounts, sort of know-how, sort of mid-80s, come on board. And then we just sort of gradually, gradually acquired more and more people. Um, by the end of the decade, there was probably about 10 people in the office. Yeah. At stage with the Auckland. Yeah. And did you, um, I mean, when, when did you sort of have the kind of the crunch moments with the, with the label? Um, well, there's different sort of crunch moments. 
There's sort of good crunch moments when <laughs> something goes well, which means you have a really successful record uh, or an important record quite often, as much as anything else. Yes. It doesn't necessarily just have to be about the money. So, I mean, the Clean Boodle EP that I mentioned before is kind of pivotal. Um, I think Chill's Pink Frost single really kind of is one of those records that, you know, selling a seven-inch single is not going to make anyone um, um, wealthy, but that was like a record that really, it was important and it just showed us a musical way ahead, you know, and what was kind of possible. And um, there were kind of a few records like that. Um, Sales-wise, so the clear other the clean broke up in 82, and for about 10 minutes I was sort of worried about what was going to happen. But really the chills and the villains, the bats that formed by that stage, Tall Dwarves were releasing great stuff. It all kind of, you know, it all just fell into place pretty much straight away. Yeah. More, more than enough to be getting on with. Um, this has sort of always been sort of financial crises, you know, with, as, as I think I mentioned before, cash flow. Sometimes there's just more going out and very big. There's more going out than there's more than there's coming in because you, you've spent it all on recording something. Um, and sometimes we had, actually it's a bit like the, um, the Ellen McGee. I've read a little about, I've met Ellen and I've read about creation, obviously. And I see, I, I, I can sympathise with, you know, I know those moments where you've got hundreds of thousands of dollars or pounds tied up in various projects and you're unable to actually finish any of them and get them out and, you know, generate the cash to pay it, pay it all off. Um, so we had a few minutes like those. There's sort of growth pains, I guess, all the way through the 80s. Yeah. An important, important record was Tuatara, the compilation we did in 85. And that's like a really sort of essential document. And I think that was kind of something that people internationally latched onto. And it was kind of a record of those first four or five years, you know, a compilation of the first four or five years of really strong material that gave people a pretty good idea of what was what had been going on here. Yeah. And did you, because um, the one thing that I I'd sort of hadn't appreciated, but now I know, I realise that there especially in the UK, I don't know if you you've have the same feeling elsewhere, but there were kind of the gatekeepers that we had, like you mentioned, the music papers, mm. you know, like we had, you know, the NME, Melody Makers, Sounds and Record Mirror. Then we had John Peel and, and you know, and every city in, in town in the UK would have a sort of indie night somewhere yep. dotted around the week on the week, you know, probably Monday or Wednesday or Monday to Wednesday or Thursday. I mean, so people could sort of, you know, once they sort of got a play on the John Peel show, a, a session, you know, there was they were kind of guaranteed gigs. So obviously if a band from like New Zealand were in the UK and they'd sort of got on that little trip, you know, the least they were going to get exposure rather than just being stuck somewhere. Did you have a similar thing like that in New Zealand as well? Uh, the situation for us here was we, we were, because we'd sort of taken the middle ground really. So um, what we were doing and the bands we were working with, I was working with, 
by the mid 80s were very much, um, we'd sort of dragged music to the left, if that makes the main yes. sense. We were inhabiting the mainstream. <laughs> um, and so our bands were playing the bigger venues at the end of the week and uh, up and down the country and playing provincial gigs as well. So, and getting covers of the, the big music magazine here in New Zealand and getting a little bit of mainstream TV. Yeah. Um, but not, not too much of that. But I think we'd moved, we'd, culturally we'd moved, dragged everything towards us as far as music goes to the experimental, the indie, the oddball. I mean, some of us still, the Chills are still a pop band, and, you know, they were important, but there was all this other stuff um, beyond them, and we, we dragged that audience, that mainstream audience towards us. We moved it quite a substantial amount, I feel. So things were kind of easy on the back of that, or easier. Yes, and then, and then... So you know you have the enthusiasm and the excitement of the eighties. How did how did you navigate the next decade? Because in this country we'd obviously had the dance explosion, then you had the grunge, and then the period, and then you had Britpop. But as you as you kind of notice, you know a lot of those labels like Rough Trade had problems. You know quite a lot of those indie labels kind of folded because people just had enough, and etc. etc. So. How was how was it for you in the now, the next decade? Because obviously things become a bit serious, and also those bands that you were, had at the beginning are probably sort of also. I mean, most bands have a five year narrative, don't they? If they're lucky, or a bit longer, but normally they start to things start to implode somewhere down the line. So, how did you navigate the nineties? Yeah, we just had a bunch of new um, new acts. I mean, we had. The band that was really big for us in the 90s, Headless Chickens. People would laugh at the name, but we ended up having a, they ended up having a number one single for us. Um, and a, quite a few big selling albums. I mean, we've always sold the cat, the catalogue's always done really well for us, you know. So, a bit like a major record company, you know, it's a big chunk of your business. And then you, um, I guess we just were lucky enough to have a few bands, well, more than a few. We had sort of bands like the 3Ds and Super Rare. There was quite a lot. There's still a lot going. The bats was, went all the way, went on all the way through. Um, a lot of people still making records. Um, Garage Land, heaps of things. So we sort of had enough bigger bands to, to survive somehow. Yeah. I mean, the 90s weren't easy and it wasn't as much fun. Um, but yeah, we got through. I don't know. Gosh, sometimes I wonder how. <laughs> but it was it was really hard work. It was more like being a proper record company, and really sitting down and concentrating on, you know, working a release. Yeah. Um, and then, because because during that decade, you were having to sort of do different deals with different people. Because was it Festival Records bought fifty percent, and then you merged with. 10 years later with Mushroom Records. So was yeah, no, it was Mushroom, Mushroom Records. At the end of the 90s, Mushroom Records bought 50% of the business. And because I just, it got to the stage where the money, you know, I just needed money. It was either the stage of the main bands 
you know, bands like the Stratic and Fitz who are just starting to sort of hit their straps. Was cutting bands like that for the JP, you know, John Paul Sartre experience, saying to them, um, you really, you know, I can't do any more for you. You're going to have to go off and, you know, find a major record company to <laughs> pay for your next album. Um, so it was either do that and sort of, you know, wind the label right back or it's find a part, find a partner that had some money and hopefully some expertise. And at the time, the obvious one seemed not to be Mushroom Records, big independent in Australia, who ironically had made a whole lot of money uh, selling Kylie McNogue and Jason Donovan records. Um, and they were interested in that worked really well for quite a few years. And that's what took me to London. So I relocated to London to try and sell some of our flying nun material in Britain and the UK. And mm. so that's how I ended up living in the UK for, I don't know, 13 years. Right. Meeting my wife, having, starting a family. Um, but while, while I was there, uh, Mushroom Records kind of implode, implode, imploded. Half of it, I think half of it, all of it got sold to News, Rupert Murdoch, essentially. Yes. Um, and I could sort of see my time was, my time was running out and I ended up leaving. And then when I came back, to, we came back to uh, New Zealand in 2005. You know, things get to that stage where you've got a, a five-year-old who's, who's thinking about um, schooling, <laughs> things like that, living in London, living in East London. And... Um, it just seemed like the time to come back. If we were going to come back, we, we, that's when we should, you know, we had to go and go, come back then or stay forever in the UK. So we came back and um, I sort of felt, getting back, I sort of felt that um, I was asked to do a job. I was asked to put a box set together for Warner Brothers, who by this stage owned the label and the back catalogue. And I did that. And... Um, it was a really interesting experience and that it reconnected me with a lot of that music for the first time in a long time. And I really enjoyed it. And then sort of putting the booklet together that went with that box set, got me talking to a lot of those people that made that music. And um, I realized I was with a lot of common and I really enjoyed their company and we were still friends. So from that, that place, I thought, well, I'll ask them if, I know major record companies don't sell bits of themselves. They do the opposite, which is why they're major record companies. I thought, I'll ask them if they'd sell it to me back. And uh, we went through this really involved process where it, um, Warner's New Zealand agreed and it went up the line to Warner's Australia and they said yes. And to Warner's, uh, you know, Asia, South Pacific office in Hong Kong, and they said yes, and that finally went to the um, the deal committee in New York, Warner's, I guess, in the Rockefeller Center there. And they came back and said yes. And so, yes, it's back here and active again. Yes, that must have... Were you feeling, once you thought, actually, I'd like to get it back, did it feel quite 
a lot of anxiety, thinking, God, if if they say no now, this is going to feel really heartbreaking. Oh, it was quite tense. But, um, you know, you get used to tension in the music business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it was quite tense. It was really hard work. And I, I have to say, it's been quite hard work since. I mean, things are going well, but to buy it back and then realise the full nature of streaming, <laughs> what streaming was doing to the industry was um, a bit of a blow to the calculations. Yes. Uh, we've done okay, we've adapted. Uh, I feel quite optimistic about what we're up to and what new things that we can do and how we can better look after the catalogue, the back catalogue, those releases and how we can showcase those better and just get people still listening to that stuff. That's you know that's the that's the essential thing. And do you? Uh, and I was going to say, do you sort of sometimes you know bring other people who have had similar kind of record label experiences and sort of swap stories? Because obviously, once you've kind of had that experience and then had those kind of moments where you probably can't sleep for weeks on end and worrying about the accounts and then getting getting it back again, it must feel quite exciting. And then you must have other people that you kind of kind of have this a similar story yeah internationally yes um other people new zealand i mean there's no other sort of indie record label that's sort of grown to us i mean we're sort of we're pretty dominant really by 82 um it happened really quickly but you know it's almost like you don't have to talk to other record company people about all those things Everyone's everyone's sort of got had the same experiences, and it's almost like, please, I don't want to talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) I know you know, and I know you know. Let's not talk about that. Let's talk about the football or the rugby or (laughs) my new hobby, which isn't music. (laughs) That's what I find happens. Yes, and did you? Stories are, you know, they're all they're sort of universal, and. yeah, no, you can kind of, there's a lot of nodding that goes on. Don't have to talk about it too much. Absolutely. I mean, and what would you, I mean, if you could have said something to an 18-year-old self, I mean, what, you know, with the experience that you've had, what would have been the thing that you wished you'd known back then? I don't know. Um, nothing really, I, I mean, I, just essentially this this whole thing has been built on on enthusiasm. And initially my enthusiasm, I think. And to sort of a little extent that my enthusiasm has been contagious, but what, what, what's actually happened is I've met people with matching or complementary enthusiasms. Yes. And that's what this thing is built on. Um, you know, it's a, it's a, gosh, it's such a, it's such a, a cliche, you know, community. But it, it really is that. It's built on built on that idea, you know, of some a small scene, like in Christchurch music scene, then kind of, kind of not fusing together, but sort of inter, interconnecting, interconnecting kind of with um, you know, a small scene in Dunedin, and then that just sort of gradually growing. Uh, so I, I I think that's the key. That's kind of the key thing, you know. It's enthusiasm for the music and meeting like-minded people and 
getting on with it. But, you know, the music needs to be good. But I, yeah. I um, and obviously you've worked with a lot of people, so, you know, that must be quite extraordinary you know, when you sometimes look back and think, well, that's a lot of bands, and each band has a lot of kind of personnel with with them. I mean, is there are there a couple of you know like either bands or artists that you look back on and think, my God, they that was a really special time? Well, the Clean, obviously, because um, they changed everything. They they changed everything, but but most importantly because of the music, the music they made, and it was really like I mean, it wasn't just me. There was a whole lot of people in eighty one, eighty two that. They, they really they really changed everything for what was possible in terms of making music in New Zealand, I guess. Yes. Chris Knox is a key character um, and sort of, you know, being a member of some key pre-Flying Nun bands, The Enemy, who I saw in, gosh, 70, 78, perhaps in Dunedin, who were the, the punk rock band, the New Zealand punk rock band. Um, Toy Love, who were kind of a new wave thing that grew out of that, would made some really good records. And then he worked with us recording acts very early on. It was his four track, after all. And made some great records with Toy, the, um, Toy Wars, which was out of Bathgate, which is a different kind of sounding thing to the stuff that was coming out of Dunedin or Christchurch, really important for the label as well. You know, great records, but great different sounding records. Yeah. Uh, so I almost feel at that stage, you know, we weren't any, long, weren't any longer a record label. We were like turning into a record company, and that we had all these. It wasn't just one sound or two sounds. It was you know all sorts of stuff happening. So they were kind of key people, and then Martin, obviously Martin Phillips and the Chills. You know, such a wonderful band, um, great songs. Yeah. Grand Downs for the Lanes. I mean, they're kind of key as well. And did you, I mean, when, did you watch, I mean, because one thing I love is my sort of rock documentaries and they, you know, it seems to be a passing of time of somewhere in the 20 to 30 years where people start to bring out books, films. Did you see the Chills film? Yes, I have. Did that bring back a lot of memories? Yes, it did. It did. I, did, I must admit, I didn't realise. <laughs> the things going on, I didn't know about. Um yeah, no, it was good. I think it was sort of a, a yeah. People go through. It. I mean, it's hard. It's really hard. This 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 music business life is hard, and it really sometimes it does its best to chew people up. Um, so it's great to see Martin back and in good form. Yes, I know. But, well, yeah, I... no, I think he, people should see that film because it's a real, you know, again, it's the the. The, the story is, is um, well, it's unique to Martin because Martin's unique, but, you know, it's a, in a broader sense, it's, it's, a, it's a universal kind of story of, um, you know, ambition and ambition and um, unfulfilled ambition almost uh, and, and the dangers of that. <laughs> I know it was, it was quite something. And did you? I mean, because a book, Kate, you you brought a book out as well, didn't you, on Flying Nun? Yeah. Did that feel quite a cathartic experience, kind of putting it down into print? Yeah, it was good because you tend to um, well, you address things, you know, as you as you're typing them typing them up. But I quite often I found myself going, oh, "Did that really happen?" Or it didn't happen that way. It happened this way. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, I don't think that. I think this. So it sort of busted a few, um, you know, personal imagined myths. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, found it, I found it really cathartic, actually. Um, in love with these times, it's called. And I, no, I found it really good, really good to do. It really um, kind of shook things up. And, you know, you just go back and listen to records. And, well, it's, it's a similar thing to that. You know, there's things you, 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 you've remembered or you think you've remembered. And then there's that thing when you go back to listen to the records because you're writing about them and it's like, oh my gosh, this is quite different to how I remembered it. This is much better. Yes. Or, or whatever. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Um, oh, it was really, it was a really enjoyable experience. Yes. Enjoyable experience. Amazing. And that is the end of the interview. Thank you ever so much for giving me the time. For that, that is Roger Shepard from Flying Nun Records. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me for some really interesting reason, make it nice. You can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Also, these have all been archived, and you can find them on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, just do C86 Show. You'll find them. Anyway, have a great week. <laughs>